Hello, good evening and good day everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of the Ask Abhijit show. Today we are going to discuss a lot of geopolitics and some other matters. Yes, and um, current affairs and so on. It's going to be uh, an interesting session, I think. Yeah. So let us see who all is here and let me greet you all. I can see Jaydeep, I can see Jay Dikshit, I can see uh, Shahin, thank you so much, sir. Uh, Ishan, Suraj, Nikhil, Kuldeep, Anirudh, Jay Z, Zach, Vasu, Shashwat, Sauraj, Ishan, Ashutosh, Suraj, Nikhil, Shivansh, Ajit, Jatin, Uday, Aniket, Manisha, Aditya, Amar, Raj, Sumit, uh, Kshitij, Vishal, Pushkar, Rahul, Sarang, Asminor, Jay Dikshit, Bhumika, Anubhav, Mohit, Suhani, Dungar Singh Johan, Deepak, Komal, Goblet, Fire, Durga, Manik, Pranay, Vladimir, Adityanath, Kayur, Alpha, Audacity, Bluebird, Kriti, Akash, Kapoor, Shayon, Priyanshi, Vishnu, Akshit, Hasharshit, and the list goes on. Karan Nalavat, Explorer, uh, Kushal Kelkar, thank you, sir, and uh, everyone else. Thank you all for being here with me this fine evening. And without further ado, as always, let's get right into the questions. So what are the questions for today? Uh, no big surprise about question number one. Here we are. Uh, Surekha says, is China going to attack Taiwan? The other question is, can China defeat the US? Akash says, China didn't respond to the Pelosi visit of Taiwan, Taiwan militarily. Do you think the worst is yet to come in the future for Taiwan and the US? Any chances for World War Three in the future? And Dhiraj says, how will China respond and manage the strategic and military competition with the US after the Pelosi visit to Taiwan? And there's one more question related to this. Ayush says, I heard news that, the chi that China attacked Taiwan but mistakenly dropped bombs in Japan's ocean area. Please, uh, let's discuss what happened after Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan and left within in less than 24 hours, right? So these are the questions right now about the Taiwan matter. So let's take it one by one. Is China going to attack Taiwan? Well, the option is there. If you're talking about military action, the option is open. China has a number of options at its disposal right now. It has a number of cards that it can play. So is it going to attack Taiwan? Well, I don't have, I'm not privy to the mind of Mr. Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party Politburo. The option is available. Yeah. But then they have to do a risk analysis, cost-benefit analysis, what can happen. Once you start a process, you can't reverse it, right? So uh, the option is there of China uh, launching military at, uh, action against Taiwan. The second question is, can China defeat the U.S.? If the Chinese were confident that they could defeat the U.S., then they would have uh, taken military action when Nancy Pelosi was about to visit. Or uh, Yeah. And, and they had been threatening that they would shoot down the plane or accompanying fighter jets. They did nothing of the sort. So if the Chinese thought that they could do it and get away with it and defeat the US, they would certainly have done that. But they did not do it, which indicates, which tells us very clearly that the Chinese know that it is not in their best interests to start a shooting war with the US, kinetic warfare. It's not going to turn out well for them. The US is overwhelmingly more powerful than the Chinese. That is a fact. China, of course, has military advantages in the uh, Champa Samudra region, the South, so-called South China Sea region, and in the Strait of Taiwan, etc. So, since we are talking about this, we must we must look at the map. Where is a Z map? 
the map is here let me hide this for a second where is the this this uh, flash point so we know where india is yes so let's go east of india we have the we have the kalinga mahasagar which is apparently called the bay of bengal we have the champa samudra which is the south china sea and here we have the island nation of yes the island of taiwan right and between taiwan and the chinese mainland we have the strait of taiwan the taiwan strait so this is where the entire matter is happening now it's interesting to see something if you go to the city of xiamen the port city of xiamen there is something called the great kinmen island this one here kinmen county yes this is administered by taiwan it's right off the coast of china just uh, a few five or six kilometers off the coast of china and it is administered by taiwan so the chinese are okay with that you see the chinese uh, know that eventually when the time is right they can take everything back so they are allowing the taiwanese to control this little uh, island right off the coast of china where they can actually see it so this is the region we are talking about right so what are the questions once again let me see uh okay so the chinese i believe cannot defeat the us it is extremely dangerous for them to start any kind of military action which involves the us they can certainly dominate this region yes they have a very powerful navy they may have more numbers than the us has anywhere in the world the chinese navy is not they don't have just a navy which means the uh, destroyers corvettes frigates frigates submarines aircraft carriers they also have a, a, you know the chinese fishing fleet also doubles up as a navy some of their other uh, vessels also which are typically non military vessels also have dual purposes so they have a massive numerical advantage in this region like like i keep saying repeatedly quantity has a quality of its own india doesn't seem to learn about this we are investing in extremely expensive platforms like aircraft carriers quantity has a quality of its own it's not my quote it's what joseph stalin said okay when he was alive mm -hmm. It, it, this quote is attributed to Joseph Stalin, not to me, but it's something I use because it makes sense. Quantity has a quality of its own. The Chinese have been following this dictum. They have massive numbers of hulls, vessels in this region. So if there is warfare, they could certainly take over Taiwan. But then the long-term consequences would be terrible. So, uh, so it's clear that the Chinese uh, cannot defeat the US. It is not advantageous for them to start military action possibly yeah uh china does not did not respond to the pelosi visit of taiwan militarily do you think the worst is yet to come in the future and any chances for world war 3 in the future and the next question is also similar to that right right so chances of world war 3 i hope are remote uh the thing about war is that it causes a lot of destruction the us and the Chinese, if they go to war, China will lose a lot of its infrastructure. They will lose uh, strategic assets. So will the U.S. And wars can uh, go beyond certain. Wars can cross certain lines that nobody wants them to cross. Right? Uh, when a certain side feels threatened, it may feel like it has no option but to but to use certain weapons that we should not never ever use. And both the Chinese and the, and the Americans have these weapons. I'm talking about nuclear weapons, obviously. Uh, so, uh, so. Do I think the worst is yet to come in the future? Let's talk about Taiwan. What's happening in Taiwan right now? Let us take a look at what's happening in Taiwan. So the Chinese, like I like I said to somebody, I'm not sure if I said it here, but I had said the Chinese would blockade Taiwan Strait. They have blockaded not just the Taiwan Strait, they've blockaded the entire island. They have blockaded the entire island of Taiwan. As you can see, this, this image 
it comes from chinese media okay so this is their official uh, it's an image put out by the chinese media itself uh, government media so they have all these different uh, blockades and and they call it military exercises that the chinese navy is uh, is engaging in legitimate military exercises around the island of taiwan so essentially what they've done is they have completely blockaded the island of taiwan they have impl- imposed a no fly zone over taiwan which means that no aircraft can come in no aircraft can come out whether it is civilian aircraft or military aircraft or government aircraft or any such thing taiwan is now cut off from the rest of the world physically no aircraft are incoming or outgoing and the taiwan is military cannot take a, take any actual action because they are completely surrounded right now and as we know the the chinese fired several uh, ballistic missiles over taiwan right so ballistic missiles have ballistic trajectories they go out into they they exit the atmosphere of the earth they go into space and then they re-enter in a in a parabolic trajectory so uh, where did these missiles uh, so there was a question about that as well uh, taiwan china attacked taiwan but mistakenly dropped bombs in japan's ocean area so the chinese did not actually attack taiwan but yes they launched cruise missile uh, sorry ballistic missiles over the taiwan island so let's take a look at the map and see where this happened uh, i'm not sure where the missiles originated but somewhere across the taiwan strait on the chinese mainland and the missiles splashed down in this region if you see this little island here hateruma it belongs to japan as you can see japan is right next door to taiwan so this island hateruma i believe is the southernmost uh, region in japan yeah southernmost point in japan and the chinese ballistic missiles splashed down ar- somewhere around this region in Jap- japan's uh, territorial waters in its exclusive economic zone so the chinese were sending not only a message to taiwan but also to japan also to japan china and japan have this long standing feud which dates back to the early 20th century and maybe even before that so th- that's a whole different story uh china has grudges against everybody essentially and they they their objective is to teach everyone lesson when the time is right so right now they are saber rattling they launched missiles that crossed the taiwanese airspace of course in outer space and they splashed down south of japan this was not a mistake this was very deliberately done it was a very calculated move multiple i think it was five ballistic missiles or maybe more i'm not sure you can look it up the exact numbers so that's what they have been doing they have not actually attacked taiwan militarily but yes uh, they are imposing a blockade and i don't see this blockade ending anytime soon so this is the new normal this is currently the new normal uh, the, the chinese have this very well known strategy or policy of uh, of creeping normalcy of salami slicing encroaching one inch at a time we know it very well we in india know it very well they they occupy tibet currently as of right now temporarily and from tibet they have been engaging on all these provocative maneuvers of 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 grabbing half a meter of land 1 meter 300 meters somewhere here when no one is looking because the the terrain is very mountainous in the india tibet border region and so it's very easy to quickly grab some land so they have been doing this with vis-a-vis india they were doing it in the 1960s vis-a-vis the soviet union yeah the chinese soviet union border clashes the usuri river clashes in the 1960s which nearly led to nuclear war so the chinese are past masters at doing this so what they are doing right now is 
they are blockading Taiwan. And this, I, I don't see this blockade ending completely anytime soon. Right? This blockade is going to this blockade. So and they've given a date at uh, at craft across the Taiwan Strait and into Taiwan's uh, territorial uh, airspace, Taiwanese airspace. And we should also know that the Taiwanese uh, uh, air defense interdiction zone extends into the into the Chinese mainland. So that is something that the Taiwanese are also uh, they have also been doing. They have also been playing this game, right? So that is a situation. That's what is happening there. Uh, so what are the other questions that we have about this matter? Uh, how will China respond and manage the strategic and military competition with the US after the Pelosi visit to Taiwan? So the main issue for China, from the perspective of China is not that Taiwan is difficult to capture. It is that Taiwan essentially is a proxy of the US, right? When you're dealing with Taiwan, you're essentially dealing with the U.S. Taiwan is like a vassal state of the U.S. They, they, it's like a U.S. proxy. It's like a U.S.-held island in this uh, region. Uh, there are these, uh, what do you call them? The islands, uh, the island chains, first island chain, second island chain. So the first island chain is Taiwan and the, and the Japanese islands, which kind of uh, cut off China's free access to the to the Pacific Ocean. Uh, Philippines is also kind of part of that. And then you have the second island chain, which is uh, um, the Marshall Islands and Guam and all that, which also the Midway Atoll, etc., which are also held by the US. So the Chinese feel that once they can break free of these island chains, then they will have the freedom to essentially take over the Pacific Ocean region with their enormous uh, naval strength and so on. But these islands are very well defended and, and, and starting any military action will be extremely counterproductive to China. So I think that given the multiple options that China has, the logical option is to continue an aggressive policy of salami slicing. Going to war, they don't want to destroy the island of Taiwan. right? They want to take it. It's, it's a valuable island. It's a, it's a prize catch. If you destroy the island of Taiwan in a, in, a, in a war, in a ballistic war, then you will have to rebuild it. They will have to spend hundreds of millions of dollars rebuilding the island of Taiwan. It is far more, it's far better to capture the island entirely intact. That makes much more sense from a military and strategic perspective, from a geopolitical perspective. You don't want to inherit a wasteland. You want to inherit something that is intact. So what the Chinese, one of the options the Chinese have is to continue this blockade of Taiwan indefinitely. Just keep it going on and on, keep uh, encroaching into their airspace, keep encroaching into their naval naval space, uh, their exclusive economic zone. Just make it all irrelevant. Make this the new normal that the Chinese will be everywhere and blockade the island. Don't allow flights in and out. Starve it in a say. It, it, it's, it's a siege policy, siege warfare policy of, of sorts, yes. And the Chinese... Uh, they have enormous uh, economic clout. There are certain disaffected elements inside Taiwan who are politically more leaning towards the Chinese Communist Party. There are always such elements in any nation, right? There are such anti-national elements in Russia, in China, in Taiwan, back home in India, etc. Every nation has certain such uh, disaffected elements. So in Taiwan, there are certain uh, elements that support the Chinese uh, claim of Chinese desire to reunify 
uh, the island of Taiwan with the ma- mainland. And the Chinese will f- maybe financially support them and give them more, you know, more prominence. And uh, so that sort of thing could happen. If you are under a state of siege where you are blockaded and you don't have any way in or out, then slowly over time you get you get Im- impatient and you start resenting the government, which is able to do nothing. And that's when these other political forces gain more currency. And even the uh, Taiwanese uh, economy has a great deal of interlinkages with China, with the Chinese economy. Many of the companies work work in both places, etc. So you could in- influence the uh, the Taiwanese population through that as well. So the, the Chinese have multiple means of achieving their long-term objectives. So I believe that right now, even though the military option is open, it is somewhat unlikely that the Chinese will indulge in a military uh, adventure or misadventure. Unlikely, not impossible. Yeah, it is certainly on the cards. The cards are open. But more likely, they will continue the blockade uh, as long as it takes. They, it, it, it costs them nothing. They can keep, on, keep it going. They have a massive naval uh, strength. And they will slowly try to turn the tide internally in Taiwan and make the population more receptive towards reunification with China. And if there is an upsurge of the sentiment, then it becomes very hard for even the Americans who keep on tom-tomming about democracy to deny the sentiment. So these are the, uh, the options that the Chinese have. What they will actually do remains to be seen. Uh, so, so that's the situation as of today, right, in this region. Now let's take a related question. Dongar Singh Johan says, why doesn't the US give nuclear weapons to Taiwan? A state of deterrence might prevent war. Interesting question. If you look at the US policies over the past many, many decades, they have nuclear weapons in various parts of the world that are not their territory. First of all, they have nukes on submarines, right? Nuclear weapons on submarines. They have a massive arsenal of ballistic missiles uh, that can deploy, that can deliver nuclear warheads to any part of the world. They also have nuclear weapons in various parts of Europe, right? The UK, which is a US colony or vassal state, has uh, a number of nuclear submarines that have British nuclear warheads mated to American. I think it's the Trident missile or the Polaris. Polaris is obsolete, I believe. One of the one of the U.S. ballistic missiles. So I believe the launch codes are not available with the U.K. Prime Minister. They are actually in the hands of the Americans. So it's uh, nukes only in name. So the U.K. has American missiles mated to British uh, warheads. So you can say it's, it's it's essentially American nukes that the U.K nominally has. Then I believe that in the Netherlands and in, and, uh, in Turkey as well, there are American uh, nuclear missiles deployed there. So they are not in the hands of the local governments. They are entirely under the control of the US military and the US government. But they have been deployed in these places. I think it's in the Netherlands, possibly Belgium, Turkey for sure, and so on. So the Americans do that, but they don't give that nation the... the uh, the control over those weapons. So what about Taiwan? Let's go back to the map because it makes sense to look at the map. So we have Taiwan here. Let's say the Americans uh, place nuclear missiles in Taiwan in order to, uh, let's say, uh, deter Chinese aggression, right? Is it not possible that the Taiwanese, if, if they are, if they are, 
put under a state of siege for months, maybe two years, three years. They may get fed up and they may open the gates for the Chinese to come in. And then those nukes may fall into the Chinese hands and they will have access to American nuclear weapons technology and missile technology. Is it, then, is it not possible? Is it not possible that you might have Chinese spies on Taiwanese territory that might possibly try to leak out certain secrets? If Taiwan falls, for whatever reason, those nukes, those missiles will immediately go into the hands of the, of the Chinese. Uh, when the Americans did this uh, attack, this uh, attack on uh, this operation in Abbottabad to take out apparently Osama bin Laden, one of their helicopters malfunctioned, they had to destroy it. And then the Pakistanis handed over the remains of the helicopter to the Chinese. This was a secret helicopter. It was a classified helicopter whose existence had not yet been disclosed to the public. Right, So there was some advanced technology. There were certain advanced technologies in the helicopter, some stealth technologies, some, some coating material, which would uh, radar absorbent material and various other things as well. So whatever was left of the, of the helicopter, they had to destroy the, that helicopter in a great haste. They put some plastic explosive or whatever, some charges and they blew it up. But much of it still remained intact. It was no longer functional. But you could study it very well. It's not like the BrahMos missile that went into Pakistan and was completely mangled out of shape, nothing left left of it. So the, so the Pakistanis could not glean any information or technology from it. The helicopter had some valuable technology, and the Chinese took that. So we don't want the Americans do not want such things to happen again. So far away from American control, Taiwan is a fortress surrounded by the wolves. Essentially, when it comes to Europe. Western Europe is entirely under U.S. control. So it's perfectly safe to place American nuclear weapons and missiles in Western Europe, in the Netherlands, in, in the U.K. Even Turkey is greatly dependent on the Americans. The Middle East is entirely, essentially, under American control. So is Egypt, so is North Africa, uh, so is the Mediterranean region. So it is safe to de deploy American uh, nuclear weapons and missiles on Turkish territory. When it comes to Taiwan, it is an extremely hostile territory. It is not safe for the Americans to place their extremely sensitive technologies and weapons over here. So I believe that is the reason why the Americans have never done this. And of course, that would provoke China incredibly to, to an incredible extent. Uh, if you place nuclear weapons there, but don't disclose it, then, it, then this, the entire purpose of deterrence doesn't happen. But if you place nuclear weapons there and, and and you disclose that, that is going to be seen as an extremely grave provocation, almost like a declaration of war by the Chinese. And then there will be consequences of, of at, at various uh, levels, at various orders of magnitude. Then it will be legitimate for the Chinese to to, uh, to escalate, to ratchet up tensions in North Korea, start, start something there because North Korea is controlled by, the, uh, controlled by the Chinese. They could escalate matters with the Japanese in the in the Senkaku, Diayu Islands, etc. They could do all kinds of things, and uh, the Americans most likely don't want things to escalate that far. They want a controlled escalation. Eventually, they want a bifurcation of the world order, a bipolar world: China and Iran and Russia on one side, and the Americans and the uh, other nations on the other side. Bipolar world. Uh, the Chinese want a unipolar world. India, Russia, France, etc. want a multipolar world. So that is the 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 game that is being played right now, right? So that, in short, is the reason why the Americans have not given nuclear weapons to the Taiwanese. Okay, Harsh says, doesn't attacking India before attacking Taiwan make more sense for China? That is an interesting thought. 
So right now what's happened is that before Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan, the Chinese made a lot of noise, they did a lot of saber rattling, a lot of strong words. We will shoot down the aircraft and you are, uh, you are crossing our red lines and final warning and all that. Yes. But then the visit happened. The Americans called the Chinese bluff and the Chinese were able to do nothing. They just sat and watched. She came over there under their noses. She did whatever she, she wanted to do and then she left. So that is a loss of face. That is a public humiliation. Right? That is indeed, you cannot put it in any other way. The Chinese have been publicly humiliated. Their threats have been shown to be empty. Yeah? And we have to understand, we have to remember that in, in autumn this year, uh, Mr. Xi Jinping is uh, due to be re-elected, re-selected, reappointed as the supreme leader of China. Yeah? So that is a critical uh, uh, critical event, a very high-stakes event for Mr. Xi Jinping and for the Chinese leadership. Now, if a leader of Mr. Xi Jinping's stature is publicly humiliated, if he loses face, yeah, then he will lose credibility and it will become difficult for him to become to be reappointed. Yeah, you could there is a lot of internal politics in the Chinese Communist Party. It's a very dog-eat-dog -dog world. Yeah, it's a it's a cutthroat environment. The the people who rise to the top in the Chinese Communist Party do that at the expense of lots of others. Mr. Xi Jinping has left a lot of people in his wake in, during his rise to the top. Yeah, he has uh, gone he, in, in the initial phase of his uh, leadership. He once he became the supreme leader, he had launched this war on corruption in which he destroyed a lot of his uh, political rivals. So. Any leader who reaches that position within the Chinese Communist Party will have a lot of enemies. As long as that leader is, is, is strong and is performing well, the dissent will be kept under the carpet. But once some kind of public humiliation happens and a loss of face happens, there are going, there's going to be trouble. Right? Knives are going to be sharpened. So... What's happening? I think it's in October. This uh, re-election, re-selection, reappointment, that entire procedure. That is extremely important for Mr. Xi Jinping. So right now, what's happened to him is a humiliation. And people on Chinese uh, social media have, have uh, they've taken to Chinese social media and ex expressed their their frustration and their anguish and all that as, at what the, the Americans have been able to pull off. Yeah, it makes the Chinese Communist Party look weak. It makes the leader look weak, which is very dangerous for the leader and also for the Chinese Communist Party. The Chinese Communist Party is, uh, they have this uh, unspoken, unwritten social contract with the Chinese people that you will accept our dictatorship and we will make China great in return for you. And we will improve your standards of living and all that. And it is all built on a plank of hyper-nationalism. That China is the middle kingdom, the greatest nation on earth. We're going to outpace the Americans. We're going to replace and displace the Americans as the global superpower and so on. That is the promise that has been made to the Chinese people repeatedly, again and again, through every single pronouncement by the Chinese government. And now when this happens, that is extremely dangerous for the, CC, for the CCP and for Mr. Xi Jinping. So Mr. Xi Jinping right now is treading dangerous waters. If, if he loses credibility, the Chinese Communist Party will quietly replace him. His career will be over. Once you fall from that position, you're done in multiple ways. Uh, so if 
Mr. Xi Jinping loses credibility if he does not show the Chinese people again that I am I am the I am the guy I'm the man I'm the big and the person who can take China forward then he will be there could be a coup in China so I have this uh, podcast with uh, Dr. Edward Luthwak on this channel you can look you can look it up in which we have discussed this matter that is Mr. Xi Jinping's secure, position secure in China and how could a coup against Mr. Xi Jinping happen within the Chinese Communist Party and he has spoken about that so this sort of thing could happen if Mr. Xi Jinping they will if things go wrong the Chinese Communist Party will blame the leader and they will put all the blame on him. They will scapegoat him, get rid of him, and get somebody else in his place. That is a very real possibility. And right now, that possibility is no longer a hypothetical or theoretical possibility. People are actively considering that, I'm sure, within the Chinese Communist Party. Very dangerous times for Mr. Xi Jinping. So, what can Mr. Xi Jinping do about this? After all this big talk, nothing happened. So the first thing is, like we know, the Chinese are blockading Taiwan. But is that enough to avenge the humiliation, blockading Taiwan? Or does China need to show something more in order to rest restore the prestige and the credibility of Mr. Xi Jinping? That is why the option of some kind of misadventure with India is open. So if Mr. Xi Jinping... Uh, all, the, all the Chinese leadership calculates that they can get away with some kind of short, sharp war with India in which India loses more territory then the Chinese public could be placated. Yes, 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 we are back. We are back. We have done it. We have shown it. You know, so that option is always open. And obviously uh, the, the, the Chinese uh, do not want a strong government in India. If India loses a short, sharp war with the Chinese in which they are publicly, in which India is humiliated by losing more territory, then it could conceivably lead to the fall of the government in the next elections, 2024. So the Chinese could end up uh, killing two birds with one stone. They could, Mr. Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping could restore his lost prestige and they could also engineer a fall of the current Indian government led by Mr. Modi. Right, and then there could be some coalition government in India with all the all those regional parties that do nothing, and then 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 India would be much more amenable to Chinese colonization and Chinese uh, uh, whatever the Chinese want, which was the case in the past. Right, so that is a very uh, attractive option, in my opinion, for the Chinese. The question is, according to Chinese calculations, is it worth the risk? Is it worth the risk? One would imagine that the Chinese, if they were to start something with India, they would do it in the Sikkim-Siliguri corridor region. And they would want to, if they can take over the Siliguri corridor region, then that would cut off the, the far east of India from Indian control and that would be a massive humiliation for India. So that is typically where they would go or they would go into encroaching further into the Ladakh region or whatever or in Arunachal Pradesh. So these are various options the Chinese have. They are always actively considering this. The question is, do they believe that they can get away with it? Because I know, I can guarantee that the Indian government is also very much aware of the options that the Chinese have. And the fact that right now Mr. Xi Jinping is kind of desperate to restore his credibility and he could be tempted to do something like this. So I believe that India is very much aware of what the Chinese are doing. The Chinese could get into Bhutan possibly, but that is not a big enough thing for them. They want to uh, throw a few punches at a, at a much bigger actor, geopolitical actor. So India is a, is a good option for that. I believe the Indian military and the Indian government is very much 
aware of all this that the chinese could do such a thing and they would have already war gamed all the possible scenarios and we have spoken about this in detail the chinese positions in tibet are pretty much exposed uh, india has satellites and other assets in 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 place which can monitor chinese activities in, in real time essentially even at night and if the chinese do anything they their military bases and their camps and all are within easy reach of indian uh, of of indian missiles and aircraft and all that india has multiple advantages and of course the chinese know that they cannot go too far with a nuclear armed nation otherwise they're going to lose much more than they will gain so this is a balancing act there is going to be the temptation for the chinese leadership and mr xi jinping especially given the events in taiwan last week this temptation will be there to possibly restore some kind of, some some kind of credibility by attacking india and taking a bite out of indian territory then the humiliation they suffered at the hands of the us will be temporarily forgotten and mr xi jinping can go ahead and get reelected or reselected or reappointed in the next uh, in that uh, october in the autumn session right so it does make kind of sense for china to consider this very seriously attacking india before taiwan maybe they don't want to attack taiwan at all they want to take over the island without firing a single shot slowly over time blockade the island and and eventually engineer an internal takeover of the of the nation of the island but vis-a-vis india there is always the temptation for china to attack india to make a point to their own people foreign policy is a reflection of internal politics always whether it's the us whether it is india whether it is other nations whether it is france whether it is china whether it is russia foreign policy is always a reflection of internal affairs and internal uh, you know whatever is going on inside if you need to appease your people you need to do certain things in the foreign policy domain which will kind of make the people happy that these calculations are always there so yes we are going through a kind of a dangerous time right now what's happening in taiwan could have repercussions in other parts of asia and other parts of the world and india obviously needs to be very alert and be aware of the fact that the chinese could have such such uh, intentions or motivations ac says why does the republic of china taiwan still claim the same parts of india as the people's republic of china does even after 73 years of being exiled to the island why haven't be we been able to make taiwan drop their claims to aksai chin some parts of pakistan occupied kashmir arunachal pradesh etc and why haven't they done this themselves please understand my dear friends that taiwan is a us vassal state taiwanese foreign policy is essentially us foreign policy taiwan is a us puppet a sock puppet so whatever the taiwanese do is a reflection of what the us wants understand this things are not what they appear on the surface if you want to truly understand geopolitics if you want to truly understand history current affairs you have to look below the surface appearances are always deceptive you can watch news 24 hours a day you will learn nothing you have to go deeper in in chess uh, a grandmaster thinks 15 steps ahead a regular person like me and you will will think maybe two steps ahead or three steps ahead a grandmaster is able to think 15 steps ahead if you want to understand things you have to be able to look be- beneath the surface of things you have to understand what really happened what is the history what are the interconnections what are the systems and things like that right so taiwan 
whether you like it or not no there is no other way of saying it beyond saying that taiwan is a us vassal state the taiwanese foreign policy is an extension of american foreign policy right and of course there are certain internal matters as well which which the us will accommodate as far as it doesn't really make too much of a difference to their national interests so yes the taiwanese government claims tibet as part of their country they claim arunachal pradesh they claim uh, parts of pakistan occupied jammu and kashmir yeah and and so on and so forth aksai chain as well they claim that and in the past it's it's so happened that the president of taiwan that lady i forget her name she on twitter wished india a happy independence day etc and like all other world leaders do and mr modi our prime minister responded to all the other world leaders but he did not respond to the wishes to the tweet of the taiwan taiwanese uh, leader president right so they and and people indian commentators indian geopolitical commentators etc were urging mr modi mr modi please respond to this friendly gesture from taiwan etc and and so on mr modi did not do that there are good reasons for that you have to understand that most people don't even know that taiwan has the same claims on indian territory as the chinese communist party does taiwan cannot be regarded as a friendly nation to india if they have these claims it means they are claiming our territory which has been our territory for thousands of years yeah so that is not a friendly the the, the behavior of of a friend right so yeah so the reason why it is so is first of all because they they themselves have an expansionist mindset and secondly because the americans want to keep pressurizing india by having these uh, tactics and taiwanese foreign policy is an extension of american foreign policy taiwan is an instrument in the hands of america to to deal with to deal with china to uh to control this region which region the 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 west pacific region the so called south china sea east china sea region and all that so that's what it is okay edge lord says the problem with xi jin the problem is xi jinping and some psychos in top positions of the ccp chinese communist party if the chinese communist party reforms and ends hostility towards other countries then india and china can easily become friends and form an asian union um psychos i think the top leadership of the chinese communist party is extremely realistic it's very pragmatic very practical and they are very logical they're not psychos and if you look at the history of china china and if you look at the kind of leaders they've had in the past i think mr xi jinping is a reasonably well balanced person yeah uh, all you have to do the problem is we don't study history right we don't study history just go back a few decades and see what kind of leaders they had see what mr mao zedong did to the to his own people nearly a 100 million deaths in china and wars with everybody yeah i think mr xi jinping if you compare him with mr mao zedong is a extremely moderate and well balanced person the overall objectives of the chinese communist party have never changed their overall objective from day 1 has always been consistent and the same to expand in all directions take over everybody's territory and become the center of the of the world middle kingdom 
the only nation that matters. Everybody else is irrelevant. That's always been the aim, the dream, the hope of the Chinese Communist Party. So Mr. Xi Jinping is doing the same thing that his predecessors were doing. And right now he is in, um, he has the advantage of a massive economy and a massive military. Because he's a massive military, he's able to pour so much more money into the military. Even if the Chinese are spending the same percentage of the GDP on, on as India on the military, they are able to uh, have a military budget of maybe $150 billion or maybe $200 billion, somewhere there, right? Because their economy is so much more massive. I don't think these people are psychos. I think if Mr. Xi Jinping falls by the wayside and somebody else comes to power, that person may be even worse, way worse than Mr. Xi Jinping. It is a possibility. Right now, he has kind of lost face. He, he has been kind of humiliated by the Americans. If he loses his position as the as the as the boss, as the supreme leader of the CCP, and somebody else is put in place by the CCP, that person is going to is is likely to be much more of a hardliner than Mr. Xi Jinping is. So uh, the the CCP is not going to reform. They are not going to end their hostility towards India or other nations. They even covet Russian territory. That that claim has never really gone away. If you look at the this region of Manchuria, the Usuri River and all that, they, they claim this territory. They have dormant claims to this territory. And those claims will be reactivated when the time is right. So the CCP is not going to reform. It is the one thing that gives them legitimacy in the eyes of their public in the eyes of 1.4 billion Chinese, that the CCP is the only, is, is going to make us great. It's going to make China number one. It's going to transform China into a superpower and we will be the, the most prestigious and greatest people in the world. That is the social contract. That is the promise. And that is why the CCP is in power. The moment they lo lose their credibility, there's going to be civil war in China. That is a, a process. It's a cycle you see over and over and over again in Chinese history, the dynastic cycles. The CCP is just one dynasty. So we, we need to be realistic. The CCP is not going to reform. If they start reforming and becoming more moderate, they will lose credibility in the eyes of their own people and that will lead to their downfall. They cannot afford that to happen. Chinese civil wars are never pretty. They are extraordinarily massive, messy and bloody. So India needs to be extremely realistic and hard-nosed. There is no possibility of China ending its hostility towards India. There is no possibility of having a friendly Asian Union. There could be cooperation between India and China if India rises rapidly in the next 10 years and becomes a significant economy and a significant military power. The Chinese will have no option but to grudgingly shake hands with India and cooperate on a variety of matters. But the overall objective, long-term objective will still be the same to destroy India and become number one. So I have said in the past, there is a possibility in, in the future of cooperation between India and China. I have not said there will be friendship and warmth. There will be issue-based cooperation, which, which already exists between India and China. But always remember the objective of the Chinese Communist Party is to make China the sole superpower in the world. And a strong India, united India, does not figure in their future envisioned world order. All right, so that's the deal. Okay, a couple of questions. Uh, Samarth Gandhi says, why did Sri Lanka allow 
Chinese nuclear missile tracking ship to dock. How should India deal with this? Should India stop helping Sri Lanka? Knowledge Seeker says, why are we so weak that a rival nation can send its military ship to a port of our neighboring country close to our nation and we are just angry with the neighboring nation, which is kind of like betraying us even after giving aid. Why are we or our government so unwilling to address this issue intelligently? All right. So uh, the Chinese want to send a missile tracking ship, a spy ship, electronic uh, measures ship, etc. Et signals, electronic signals tracking ship to Sri Lanka, to the Hambantota port. Let's see where it is. They want to send it there. They have not sent it there yet. They have not uh, docked the ship there. So where is Hambantota? Somewhere in the south of the country. Where is it? Where is it? Here it is. This is Hambantota. This is a port that is essentially owned by the Chinese. You know, given a bit to the Chinese by the previous corrupt Sri Lankan government. Uh, all Sri Lankan governments are more or less corrupt, essentially. So right now, Sri Lanka is going through a crisis. India is helping Sri Lanka. India is providing a, a long and massive line of credit. And India is sending various, uh, I mean, I mean, uh, you know, food drains, etc. Or, or maybe diesel, petrol, whatever, to Sri Lanka to help them tide over this crisis. There's a new government that's come into place. Uh, Ranil Vikramasinghe is the new new leader in Sri Lanka. He is another stooge of the West. If you look at his history, you will know that. I will not go into the details right now. So the Chinese want to send a spy ship, electronic tracking ship to, to Sri Lanka. And this ship is, is extremely sophisticated, very good technology. It can track missile launches and rocket launches very precisely. So let's say India wants to launch some kind of ship. ISRO is, uh, sorry, not ship, rocket. Let's say ISRO wants to, to launch some rocket. ISRO launches a rocket. This ship can track it from very far away, from all the way south in the southern part of Sri Lanka. Uh, the ISRO la launching place is somewhere in Orissa, right? Vishakhapatnam, somewhere in this region, somewhere in the eastern part of India, Orissa. A few uh, hundred, maybe a few thousand kilometers from Hamandota. So the Chinese, through this ship, will be able to track that rocket launch. Let's say we are launching a new kind of rocket, which we did today, a tiny rocket. So the Chinese, if they have a ship in this region, they can track it and they can kind of decode what this rocket is about, what is new about it, what is different about it, what are the the new capabilities that the Indians have acquired or, 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 or built. Similarly, if India is to launch a ballistic missile, an intercontinental or intermediate range ballistic missile from the eastern coast of India, then this Chinese ship in Sri Lanka will be able to track it uh, and monitor the, the missile launch and uh, give the Chinese a great deal of very uh, good intelligence about the characteristics and parameters and capabilities and range of the new ballistic missile that India is testing. So that is what the Chinese are doing. That's So they have requested the Sri Lankans to, to allow this Chinese spy ship to dock in the Hambantota port. Initially, the Sri Lankan government agreed to this. And that's why there was this uproar in Indian media. The latest thing I've heard is that the, the Sri Lankans have said, we are giving you permission, but after so-and-so date. So I don't know what that date is. And I don't know if there is some event coming up in India around that date. So the Sri Lankans are giving permission, but after a certain date. I'm sure the Indian Ministry of Foreign Affairs is in constant contact with the Sri Lankans. And India would have uh, made certain things clear to Sri Lanka. 
so yeah, so that is the situation right now. They have been given permission to dock, but after a certain date, and maybe there's something coming up in India, some kind of missile launch or some test or something, which I am not quite sure what it is, but it may be there. There could be something coming up. Uh, so that's the deal. Now the question is, how should D India deal with this? India should make it very clear to Sri Lanka that this sort of uh, behavior is not acceptable. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, should India stop helping Sri Lanka? You see, in international affairs, in geopolitics, all help is conditional. Like I've said many times, there are no friendships in geopolitics. The Indian government has a singular purpose to serve the nation and its people and to further India's national interest. That is the only purpose of the Indian government. Indian money, whatever it is the government has at its disposal, is to be used for these purposes only. Now, if India is giving aid to Sri Lanka, financial aid, monetary aid, other aid, there has to be some reciprocity. It has to be conditional aid. The aid we are giving to a foreign nation, it, Sri Lanka is currently a foreign nation for now. It's a, it's a separate country, it's a separate government and separate people. So if we are giving aid to Sri Lanka, it has to have certain conditions that you will not do this or that or whatever. There have to be very clear conditions, and in case the Sri Lanka, so in the, in case the Sri Lankans are doing, are taking actions or steps that are detrimental to India's national interest, the aid should be immediately cut off, and there should be further action, which could uh, essentially ensure that Sri Lanka doesn't indulge in such activities again, right? Um, so, is Sri Lanka betraying us? No, they are not betraying us. They are testing us. There are no betrayals in geopolitics. There are U-turns, and you, uh, the public can consider that to be a betrayal, but actually it is nothing but a standard geopolitical maneuver, yeah, a so-called betrayal. The Sri Lankans are testing the limits of where they can go vis-a-vis -vis India. They are currently dependent on India. India is giving them all this aid. They still want to see how far they can go without uh, before the Indians uh, get upset and, and they, they stop the Sri Lankans. So they are testing India. The government that is currently in power is, is this guy Vikramasinghe is a Western stooge. Uh, he is a member of various, uh, well, organizations that will demonstrate his credentials as a, as a, as a time-tested Western stooge. So that's what the uh, Sri Lankans are doing. Now, the thing about, I can understand why people get upset. Uh, people get upset that India is helping another nation and India is getting nothing in return. They are betraying us. Uh, India, are India is India uh, is India not intelligent? Is India helpless? Why are we helping people for nothing? Uh, the thing is, this India is still India is now definitely emerging as a major geopolitical power, and yet India is not able to control certain countries in its neighborhood. Sri Lanka is now coming to heel for sure, but there are other nations in India's neighborhood that India is still not able to influence to the extent that it would like to influence. The question you have to ask yourselves is this. Let's take a look at the Indian territory, yes. Let's remove this. This is the geographical extent of the present day nation state of India. How many portions within India's territorial boundaries is the Indian government able to control completely? There are certain regions where there are problems. There are problems. There are so many. See, people talk about a 2.5 front war. What they mean is that India's main enemies are within India. There are so many uh, actors, let's say, 
within India's own territory that are on the payroll of foreign governments and who are serving the national interests of other nations. This is known to everyone. And uh, we know the nations that are funding these various actors and elements within Indian territory. A nation like India or any other nation can become geopolitically influential only when it deals with the internal threats first. Right? Take a look at China. Why is China so influential in its neighborhood? Because they have quelled all internal problems. There are lots of uh, elements, let's say, within China that would like to see China as in its present state to be broken up. And there are legitimate interests. When we talk about Tibet, Tibet doesn't belong in China. When we talk about Manchuria, you may not know this, but Manchuria should not be Chinese territory. The, the, the Chinese have taken over half of Mongolia. So there are many forces within China that would legitimately like to see the Chinese nation broken up because it's taken over so many foreign territories. But the Chinese have quelled all that internal dissent. There is The, the writ of the Chinese Communist Party is supreme within the Chinese territory. And that's why they're able to be so influential externally. When it comes to Russia, there are lots of these Western stooges within Russia. I will not take names, but there are such people. Those have been, let's say, uh, their their actions have been kind of neutralized by the Russian government. You can call it despotism, dictatorship, whatever you want to call it. I don't care. But practically, they have been able to neutralize those foreign forces within Russia. And that's why Russia is so geopolitically influential externally. The US, it doesn't tolerate dissent internally. It talks about democracy and human rights and freedom of expression and all that. But anybody who speaks, who takes actions that are detrimental to US national interests within the nation will be immediately dealt with extraordinarily harshly. So you have to first take complete control of your own territory and quell all anti-national elements and forces. Once you do that, you will automatically become powerful geopolitically. So India has a lot of internal friction, internal problems. Once that is dealt with, when everybody is on board with the national interest right now, lots and lots of forces within India are working against India's national interests. Once that is dealt with, India will automatically be orders of magnitude, 10 times, 100 times more influential than it is right now. So that is the real problem that we are facing in India, right? So that's the deal with the Chinese spy ship in Sri Lanka. Luis Gerardo Escandón Alcazar says, if India assists, if India assists the Chinese, the, the, the Shanghai organization meet, if India attends the Shanghai organization meetings, at the same time it forms part of the AUKUS, Australia, UK, US, or the Quad, where does that leave it in the case of a possible near future war on the Taiwan Strait, even if limited? Greetings from Mexico. Greetings from India, sir. So, uh, India is indeed part of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, SCO, yeah, which is essentially a, a Chinese creature. It's It's been created by, created by the Chinese. Russia is part of it, India is part of it, Pakistan is part of it, and several uh, Central Asian nations are part of the SCO. India is one of the major nations. There are three major nations, India, China, and Russia. It is China-dominated, right? 
So India is part of the SEO. India is also part of the Quad, which the Chinese construe as an anti-China alliance. So the Quad, it's not an alliance as such. It's a coalition. It's India and America and its puppet states. It's India, the US, Australia, and Japan. Australia and Japan are US colonies, essentially. So it's an Indo-US coalition of sorts. And the Chinese consider that to be an anti-China alliance. So on the one hand, India is cooperating with China in the SCO. It is part of the same organization. On the other hand, it is part of an organization that is rightly or wrongly construed by China as an anti-China organization, right? So this is what I spoke about in the past, about the what, what we call the Jai Shankar doctrine, that India will engage with all major geopolitical players in, in issue-based cooperation. There will be complete broad-spectrum cooperation when it comes to economic development activities yeah with the us with china with the west but there will be issue based cooperation on strategic matters on geopolitical matters on foreign policy matters and there will be no cooperation when it when it comes to things that can impact india's national interest which is why when it comes to china there is not that much of economic cooperation because the china the chinese want to flood india with their cheap products and extract money out of India. So that's why India is not engaging economically also that much with China. But it is uh, part of the SCO vis-a-vis the Central Asian region and and, and these other nations. So India is giving issue-based cooperation to various nations, even even to the Chinese, depending on what, uh, what issue we are dealing with which tells you that India is pursuing a policy of multi-alignment. This is not non-alignment. This is multi-alignment. This is a complete break from the past. In the past, India was part of the losers club, the non-aligned nations. And the objective was to achieve nothing. Yeah, there was, there was no real geopolitical or, or geoeconomic objective that the NAM had. So today, India is following a very different foreign policy. India is for pursuing a foreign policy of furthering its national interest by cooperating with whoever has mutual uh, in, in ways that are mutually beneficial with a wide range of, of nations. So the question, so, so that is the context to, to this question. Now the question is, where does it leave India in the case of a possible near future war on the Taiwan Strait, even if limited? India will say it's none of our business. India will say we don't have a horse in this race. It, this does not concern India. We call upon the, the warring parties to cease fire immediately and stop hostilities and please ensure that civilians are not affected and not hurt. That's what India will say. Exactly what India said in the Ukraine war. India called upon both nations to uh, have ceasefire, to have a ceasefire, to ensure that civilians are not affected and so on and so forth. Yes. And... Uh, Anytime civilians were killed or whatever, India condemned that, etc. But India has not taken sides. India has condemned the military action. India has called for a ceasefire. India has called for a negotiated settlement, diplomatic settlement instead of military settlement. But India has refrained from taking sides. And India has refrained from condemning either of the either of the nations explicitly. Right? Whether it's Ukraine, whether it's Russia. Similarly, if there is a conflict in the Taiwan Strait, India will, will India will repeat this procedure. India will will call for a military ceasefire. India will call for a cessation of hostilities. India will uh, call for a negotiated diplomatic solution of the problem, and India will 
demand that civilians are not targeted in in any manner this is what india will do but india will refrain most likely from condemning any side and india will refrain from getting involved in any way whatsoever but of course india will monitor the situation very closely and and in case uh, certain advantageous conditions arise in certain ways india will certainly take advantage of that as any nation would so that is how i see things going in the hypothetical scenario of a future war in the taiwan strait if the war goes beyond the taiwan strait and becomes a widespread war as wars tend to do sometimes remember 1914 so if that happens then india will take appropriate measures to defend its national interest and and other interests so that's how i see that's what i see happening right samad says why is the us delaying nuclear missile tests so the tests we are talking about are the americans were supposed to test out these are periodic tests they conduct on their ballistic missiles Uh, these are nuclear capable ballistic missiles but they're not testing a nuclear weapon they're testing that the missile works properly so let's take a look at the map and now let me tell you what this missile test was supposed to be about uh let's go to the us west coast so uh, north west of los angeles northwest of santa barbara the americans have the vandenberg air force base do you see this this place is called the vandenberg air force base this is from where the missile test was supposed to happen the it's an intercontinental ballistic missile around 8000 9000 10000 kilometers range maybe more maybe more um this is a called the missile is called a minuteman 3 missile it was supposed to be launched from there and it was supposed to go go into the region of the mariana islands the mariana islands in this region So if we take a look at the distance uh, let's calculate the distance from here measure distance from here all the way to Vandenberg Air Force Base somewhere in this region the distance is around 9000 kilometers so you can see it's an intercontinental ballistic missile range the Minuteman 3 missile and every nation that has such missiles conducts periodic tests of these missiles to see that they are working fine right so this test was supposed to happen earlier in the year but then the 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 russian intervention in ukraine happened so the americans delayed the test they said let's uh, not not indulge in any provocating uh, provocating uh, maneuvering so they delayed the test they said let things settle down a little bit now they were supposed to have this test around this time i believe and because of the taiwan strait crisis they have again delayed the test so as to not offend china and and uh, you know keep tensions low so that is the official thing that i'm hearing they are delaying or deferring the missile test in order to keep the tensions low there are already enough tensions in the, in the taiwan region etc they don't want to add fuel to that fire apparently that's what they are saying now i don't see how a missile test far away from china a routine missile test far far away from china would would add to the tensions with china or even with russia when you are testing a missile in the pacific ocean right the mariana islands are far away from china uh, if you if you look at the map where's the map here's the map the mariana islands are the second island island chain they are way 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 far away from china right so i don't see how it should offend china or or make them you know or or add to the tensions but that is what the americans have said that's the i think that's been the official communication or response to questions so 
that's what they have said now does it make sense to me it doesn't really make much sense to me but yeah well i'm sure they know things that i i, I don't know right i'm just an outside observer there is an event horizon i don't know what's beyond the event horizon i'm trying to guess deduce prognosticate based on whatever evidence is available outside so that's what they have said they don't want to add to the tensions that are currently existing vis-a-vis taiwan and that's why they are delaying it yeah that's it alpha beta says why the hell does dw new okay why has dw news started to criticize mr ukraine mr zelensky what's the reason yes we are observing certain strange phenomena in the geopolitical sphere in the journalistic sphere media you know uh, the western controlled media is kind of criticizing mr zelensky i have not seen this dw news thing but like you're saying it must have happened but what i can show you is this we all know amnesty international which is controlled by the by the west which means it is controlled by the us they are always critical of india if you see their twitter let me show you an interesting tweet from amnesty international which came uh, 3 days ago august 4th they said this um, ukrainian forces have put civilians in harm's way by establishing bases and operating weapon systems in populated residential areas such tactics violate international humanitarian law and endanger civilians as they turn civilian objects into military targets now in case you have seen my previous episodes from when the russia ukraine war started i said precisely the same things i said that the ukrainians are in, are using these horrible tactics of putting uh, the you know weapon systems etc in civilian areas and when the russians are forced to retaliate it will cause civilian casualties it will make the russians look bad but the ukrainians are putting their civilians on the line as cannon fodder i said that this thing in february in march and i got a lot of criticism for that lots of uh, western commentators i saw the comments they are still there on on my channel i the, the comments that they have put now amnesty international is corroborating what i had said at that time right now so what's happening amnesty international is essentially an agent of the west of the western powers which means the us mm-hmm. they are used time and again to criticize the indian government to make india look bad to claim that india has human rights abuses and god knows what else all lies so how come they have suddenly turned against mr zelensky and the ukraine regime what's what's happening and like uh, mr alfabira says or who, who he or she is yeah i don't know the gender so apparently dw news also is criticizing mr ukraine mr zelensky and maybe some other things may also be up up there in the media i haven't seen yet yeah this is an interesting turn of events is the tide turning for mr zelensky is he no longer of much use to the west have the, has he served his purpose if things continue like this you may soon in the forthcoming days see stories of mr zelensky's half billion dollars in some bank account in the west or something like that and then all they have to do is is put all the blame on him that he mismanaged the situation and that's why ukraine is not doing well that's why ukraine is losing blame it all on him and then move on so you see it's like this whether it was mr saddam hussein whether it was anybody else the west uses these despotic people these little puppet puppet like people saddam hussein actually was a iraqi nationalist he tried to take his country in a certain direction he was not a puppet 
but yes he he was certainly an agent of the us for a long time the americans used saddam hussein as the as a stick to beat iran with and then when he served his purpose they threw him to the wolves we know what what they did to him they the americans have this long history if you study the history of the 20th century in africa in other places they have this history of doing this again and again and again propping somebody up as long as they serve a certain purpose and then once the purpose is served you throw that person to the wolves so it looks like it looks like mr zelensky is a kind of in trouble if amnesty international criticizes him openly and doesn't delete the tweet the tweet is there for 3 days it sends a certain signal it looks like mr zelensky's days as as a world leader <laughs> are numbered yeah so i don't know what's going on maybe the americans are now they they want to focus more on the taiwan thing yeah the ukraine russia thing is old news now tired that people are tired you know these wars are distractions for the american public to keep the public engaged on on things that are apparently very important there is a recession there is a terrible recession happening in the us right now the us government has changed the definition of of recession in order to claim there is no recession the definition of recession ask any economist is two or more quarters of negative gdp growth what's a quarter 3 months there are four quarters in a year the first three months the next three months the next three months the next three months the definition of a recession in economics is two consecutive quarters of negative economic growth of of a gdp getting smaller and that's what's happening in the us the us is in a recession the fuel prices are 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 extraordinarily high right now just see the, what the prices of of gasoline of fuel were during donald trump's time and see what the prices are right now during the time during the presidency of joe biden look at the approval ratings of joe biden the lowest in all us history yeah lower than jimmy carter so there are problems internally yeah now ukraine was a nice diversion for the american public we are doing something righteous we are supporting the righteous side we are supporting zelensky this great freedom fighter now people may be getting tired of it so let's start something new in taiwan we sent pelosi there to to stir up the flames and now let's focus on taiwan i'm just speculating i don't know what the decision making and thought process is in the state department in the us government etc but this is what it looks like so maybe now the tide may turn for mr zelensky now the western media is is, is allowed to criticize him rightly for what he is doing and it, it's not he who is doing that he is just the the face the public face of the ukrainian government right he doesn't really have any power he's just an actor who's acting as president he and his wife they had this recent photo shoot on on the front page of vogue as you may have seen so that's what's going on so the the tide seems to be turning for mr zelensky it looks like he may not no longer be of a great deal of use for the puppet masters who are running ukraine and some 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 changes may occur soon possibly possibly yeah okay hey so um i had this video right i think it's it's uh, i had answered a question last week about subhash chandra bose and i said that uh, the question was mr bose failed but why do we still admire him and i had given an answer to that you can look it up it's available as a short clip on this channel so uh, so lots of people got upset with that about that they are all saying 
so let's see what people are saying yeah deepdeep deepdeep is saying why do you think he failed kindly answer that it is so wrong on so many levels to say that he failed answer please gator said he succeeded the british lost no the battle was lost but the war was won without his contribution independence day would certainly have been deferred by a few years uh bijoy says who said nitaji failed he gives freedom to india vijay says because of him we got independence the fear of azad hind fauj in the british paras says nitaji succeeded as india got independence during the due to the mutiny and so on and the mera pet says correct yourself fact is his idea in ultimate sacrifice led to india's freedom in the late 1940s all right all right so everyone so lots of people not everyone but lots of people are saying that you that i am wrong mr bose did not fail he gave india independence and so on and so forth okay that's what you say now let's take a look at this from a different perspective what were subhash chandra bose's objectives what were his stated objectives he tried being a politician he was the president of the indian national congress right in the, the, the congress party mr gandhi outmaneuvered him uh, uh, played a political coup against mr bose and he was ejected he had to resign right because he lost political support that's the game mr gandhi played against him mohandas gandhi so mr bose saw that when it comes to the the indian national congress they did not support they, they they did not have the same vision as mr bose had for india they wanted cooperation with the british they wanted uh, independence for india whenever it happens on the terms set by the british and the terms set by mr mr gandhi and mr nehru that's what the indian national congress was a vehicle for it was a vehicle for the eventual transfer of power from the british to a bunch of indians on the terms set by the british which would include partition and destruction of 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 india's uh, territorial integrity yeah Th- those th- those uh, demands for partition etc were already in the air at the time so mr bose decided to dissociate himself from the congress party he formed the forward block and then he went into exile he escaped from house arrest and his objective then became to secure independence from the british for india through military means complete sampurna swaraj sampurna swaraj not some stupid transfer of power on the terms set by the british no partition a complete eraser annihilation of all the harm the british had done to india yes what you these people are saying we got independence you call that independence it was a transfer of power from one set of crooks to another set of crooks but the british interests remain in india you think uh, mr nehru as prime minister was in, independence for india you think that's that's independence you think the 1946 uh, uh yeah we had a mutiny and all that but that did not work right obviously uh the constitution that india got you think that is independence it is a continuation of the of the 1935 legislation of the british the laws that the british had written remained in place the indian penal code dates back to 1860 i think 1830 whatever it is look it up nothing changed all the stooges the british had built up over time in india they retained their positions of power and prestige after our so called independence and the common people who had lost everything they still have nothing before the riot act r y o t riot worry act that the british legislated 
almost all Indians had some land. Indians always had land. The British took it away and gave it over to the, to the Zamin. The process started with the Mughals, with the Turks, the Zamindari system of of uh, of taking away land from Indians and putting the the land in the in the hands of these tax collectors and thugs called zamindars. And many Indians were part of that, the so-called zamindars, the Tagores, Takors, etc. Yeah. And the British took that further with the Rayatwari Act, and they they took away all the ancestral land from whoever, from whatever was left of the Indian population. More than, I don't know how many, millions, hundreds of millions of Indians had their land usurped from them because of this act. So after independence, if it is real independence, should the land not be given back to Indians? Nothing of that happened. The same laws continued, the same institutions continued, the people who were in power, their descendants are still in power today in various Indian institutions. Yeah. You, do you really think that was independence? Celebrating a, uh, some something on August 15th, do you think that is really, really, real independence? The education system never changed. We are still being taught law, uh, fake history. If Mr. Boz had come to power, he would have stopped all that. He would have created a new system. He would have given you some Swaraja. You are so blindfolded right now, you don't even realize that you are not free. Right? That is the problem. Mr. Bose, his objective was to give India some Swaraj and to evict the British through force from India, destroy the institutions of oppression that they had constructed and recreate India from scratch. That's what his objectives were. If, if you were to ask Mr. Bose, Mr. Bose, do you think you succeeded or failed? What do you think he would say? Mr. Bose was a man of standards. The problem with you all is that you don't have standards. Unfortunately, it's it's sad to see this. If India is to... I get this question every day in the comments. When will India become a superpower? Do you think India will become a superpower when you have low standards? If you want India to become a superpower, raise your standards. Raise your standards to the standards that Mr. Bose had for himself. And then we may have a chance. With this attitude... With this attitude, nothing is going to change in India. If you were to ask Mr. Bose, he would be the first to say that I failed in achieving my objectives. Yes, it hastened India's so-called transfer of power, independence, transfer of power. But what was the result of that? The results that he wanted have still not materialized. So yes, Mr. Bose failed. And if it, if it offends you, so be it. Okay, Kiel Magne Ask says, the Republic of India is a continuation of British India. Face the reality and stop spreading this anti-white propaganda. No, I agree. The Republic of India is a continuation of British India. Even today, it's as if the British are still ruling India. Even today, it is as if the British are still ruling India. I am speaking in the language of the British. The education system is in the language of the British. You want a job, you have to be able to speak English. You have a job, you have to go through the, through the grind of the colonial education system. Yes, in the 21st century, they teach you computer science and all that. But the way they teach things and the, and the exams are still the same as they were in the 19th century. Nothing has changed. It's about memorization and about passing exams, not about actually learning anything. You're not allowed to question teachers. Everything is the same. The institutions are the same. The constitution is a foreign constitution. It was drafted by this constituent assembly that was the result of the 1946 elections held by the British on Indian soil. 
a foreign occupying power held elections how can you consider that to be legitimate less than 13% of eligible indians were allowed to vote in those in those elections if elections were held in occupied france during nazi germany's time do you think those elections would be called legitimate but no so yes india is still colonized and people don't realize it everything is right in front of you but you, you don't see it that's how blind people are so i agree with my dear friend kel magne ask we have to face the reality india the republic of india is a colonized nation it is a continuation of british india that thing has changed the laws are the same the constitution is foreign the indian penal code is the british penal code everything is the same the institutions that you are laboring under are british institutions so i don't know what anti white propaganda you're talking about but i agree with you yeah okay mazar chachar says you always uh, say that the pashtun leader khan abdul ghafar khan was against the partition but you seldom mention the sindhi nationalist allah baksh allah baksh sumro who lost his life in 1943 because he stood against the lahore resolution and the partition of india uh yes you are right i don't seldom mention him i have never mentioned him until now so yes allah baksh sumro was a sindhi uh, politician he was an indian nationalist he was dead set against partition he opposed the partition vehemently uh he was quite influential and uh, yes he stood against the lahore resolution he opposed partition he wanted a unified india he said that muslims are indians they are not pa- he he opposed the two nation theory the do qaumi nazaria yes and because of all these things he lost he was assassinated in 1943 while while uh, being transported on a tanga horse cart yes so yes uh, there are many such people there are not many such people but there are some such people who deserve to be uh, remembered and recognized for putting their lives and, and everything on the line for the sake of um, the territorial integrity of india yes so uh, i would encourage my viewers if they are interested in uh, reading more about uh, this this good man allah baksumro who was against the partition of india and he, and he had to pay the ultimate price for that erika says uh, thank you thank you uh, the question is uh, what was the special way of life and governance that made india prosperous before colonization and would it be possible to live this way again today we what would be required and how could and everybody contribute to reach this way of life also are there books about this are uh, books uh, which address the specific issue i'm not sure there are any um uh, but let me address the main question which is what was the special way of life and governance that made india prosperous before colonization is it possible to live this way again today see india is a river valley civilization for 10000 plus years india has been in all in settlements in the indian subcontinent from top to bottom east to west north to south have been uh, around river valleys so people talk about the indus valley civilization that is just one phase of india's long history we have if if you call that the indus valley civilization there is a kaveri valley civilization also there is a tungabhadra valley civilization there is a ganga valley civilization these are not separate civilizations this is just different local manifestations of the overall indian civilization so the first thing is india has always been a river valley civilization india has always been a dharmic culture which worships nature which 
frowns upon any attempt to destroy nature or exploit nature yes killing of animals killing of forest destroying forest all that was is regarded as a, as a sin right of course you had warfare you had meat eating at various times but it was always done in a humane fashion war and, and the thing about this is this see india as we know it's it's now known that india was the nation with the highest gdp in human history for for the most part of human history um the highest according to angus madison is one third of the entire world's gdp well even those are actually uh, there are certain oversimplifications in that and before 0 ad i think india's share of the world's gdp would have been higher than one half maybe two thirds that's how prosperous india was it was so widespread and so extremely well developed we see that even 5000 years ago you had better pl- town planning in india than what we have today so india was technologically very advanced but what are the characteristics why did india become this way firstly it's because even when you had warfare the warfare never targeted civilians and civilian areas the battles were always pitched there would be a battlefield both sides would fight there fight it out and sometimes next to the battlefield you would have farmers tilling their crops and no tilling their crops and they would never be touched warfare did happen there were a few bad kings here and there but overall warfare had certain ethics ethical rules you never ever touch a civilian you never destroy civilian property and therefore even though various kingdoms from would from time to time fight each other they would have wars and they would be conquered by other kings india's economy would never ever suffer and much of the wealth was donated to temples temples were educational institutions kings would donate wealth kings would sub, uh, kings and emperors would subsidize edu- education education was free healthcare was free and there was a great deal of prosperity there was always surplus um, grains and all that to offset for el, el nino kind of uh, events when you would have less rainfall from time to time once in a while so there were no famines in india so the overall system was such that whether you had a single emperor who unified the whole subcontinent or you had multiple kings the the cultural aspect and the civilization aspect was the same the way of life was the same so when you had conflicts you would never have destruction of public property civilians would never die it did not matter to civilians who became the king things would stay the same and the wealth of india was built in a variety of ways first of all you had natural resources yes uh india was the first fully industrialized and urbanized civilization in the known uh, history of the, of the world yeah so there was this emphasis on learning on science and technology which of course uh, translates to military matters as well and india had things that everybody else wanted india was trading with the chinese india had the surplus grain production and all others would want that in return india would get gold india had extensive trade with the greeks with the greek greece is a small region but egypt was bigger and rome was prosperous 2000 years ago so we had ports in western india which would send spices etc to the romans and the romans would get, send back gold to india in exchange for that so because of this trade the india had this enormous trade surplus with the world which is why india became over time over the centuries over the millennia very prosperous india did not have capitalism capitalism means extremely rapid growth capitalism is the endless pursuit of quarter upon quarter profits at, at the expense of everything else and capitalism is what is destroying the environment today 
the Western worldview is that the, the earth is a resource. Nature is a resource to be exploited. And that is causing the very rapid destruction of our environment, of the oceans, of the forests, of the land, everything, the soil. India saw nature and the earth as sacred. So whatever growth happened, happened slowly. It happened over centuries. And the environment was never, ever destroyed. So that was the special thing about India. The prosperity happened slowly. 10,000 years ago, there would not be so much gold and prosperity in India. I, I imagine. We don't know, right? We, because we have done no research from the historical and archaeological perspective from that time period. But we know that there, there are cities, there are the remains of cities that are under the Indian Ocean. In the let's say the Gulf of Khambath that date, date back to 10,000, 12,000 years before today. Properly well designed cities that date back 10, 12,000 years. So India was that advanced architecturally and from an engineering perspective, even 10, 12,000 years before today. So, so all the wealth that India had was acquired over centuries, over millennia. It was slow accrual of wealth. It, it is so if you try to recreate the same system today, it will take time to reach the same levels of prosperity. Maybe 200 years, maybe 500 years. But the rest of the world follows capitalism. So that's why India is right now, India has no option but to follow the same practices as the rest of the world is following. But that is not good for the environment. And that's that's the conundrum that we are facing today. Right? So that is what, what the uh, lifestyle was like. That's how the kind of governance we had. And that is what was destroyed by, first of all, the Turkic colonization and then the Western, European and British colonization of India. That entire lifestyle, everything was totally destroyed and all the wealth was transported out of India, first by the Turks and then by the British. They finished what the Turks started. Nick says, with such strong underpinnings of Hinduism, which has taught us to be strong and fight back when needed, why did we still fall, fall short of defending ourselves from external forces? I think um, there were times when India was disunited, it was fragmented. When, Whenever India has been unified under a single emperor, whether it is during the Mauryan era or other eras, then India has been invincible. To unite India, this entire subcontinent-sized region takes a great deal of fortitude. When you have emperors like that, it is impossible for people to even, for outsiders, invaders to even think of invading India. You know, Alexander tried, you know what happened to him? And so on. So it's not about Hinduism. It's not about that. It's about uh, India. There were times when India was not politically united under a single central leadership. Vishnu Gupta Chanakya said this, the highest duty or highest morality of a king is that his nation and his people should prosper. Right? Only his nation, not other nations. So when you have an emperor like let's say Chandragupta Maurya, like Ashok or, or like Kanishka or Rajendra Chola or whatever, if they were able to unify a very large portion of the subcontinent, it was their highest duty to ensure that all the people within this region would prosper and the nation would prosper. But if you had a time period when you had disunity in India, you had small kingdoms, then each king would look out for his own people and his own territory at the expense of others, obviously. 
because there is competition, there is rivalry. And during such times, it is easy for foreign powers to come and conquer you and then occupy you. And that's what happened during the Turkic era, during the era of the Turkic invasions. First, it was invasions from the West, from Arabia. They destroyed Persia first. Then they started encroaching on, on Western India, Balochistan, Sindh, uh, Gandhar, Afghanistan, etc. Then you had Turkic invasions. And these invasions uh, initially failed. They were repulsed time and again. It took several centuries for them to start encroaching into mainland India. Right? If you had an emperor like Chandragupta Maurya or Ashok, who was rather nasty sometimes, yeah, or, or Kanishka, etc., then such invasions would have failed, guaranteed. But because India was disunited, even though some of these kings and queens were very valorous, etc., because there was a lack of political unity, that's why India eventually, slowly over time, fell to the uh, barbaric invasions from other places, which were indeed barbaric. There is no other way of, of putting it. Yeah. So that's what happened. The, the lesson of the story, what is the moral of the story? you have to be united. Even today, India is not truly united. There are lots of forces within India that are pulling India in different, different directions. There are many forces within India. I'm not taking any names, by the way. There are many forces within India whose interests do not align with the Indian national interest. Their agendas are such that they are against India's national interest. There are so many such forces. So in such circumstances you need a strong government you need political unity and uh, yeah you need to deal with these things so the moral of the story is you need unity political unity and you need a strong government and a strong military which comes from a strong economy and of course you need the right leadership you may have the greatest military at your disposal but if, if the leader is not quite good then you may still fail so you need a combination of these factors in order to uh, to prosper all right. Okay, Aman Saw says, why do Europeans have no problems with Indians, but extreme hatred towards the Romani people? It's weird for me. Please answer. And the Sibella, who appears to be Romani, says, actually the Romanlar in Turkey don't speak Romani and refuse to be acknowledged as Romani. That's why they're accepted by the Turkish population, because they have all become Muslim and they have denounced their Romani roots. Okay, let me answer the first question first. Why do Europeans have extreme hatred for the Romani people, but they have no problem with Europeans? 20 years ago, the Europeans would have been quite racist against Indians as well. Today, Indians are all over the world. They contribute to the local economies. Indian tourists go all over the world. India doesn't know this. We in India don't know it because we are not encouraging tourism. When you have a massive influx of tourists into your country, it boosts your economy. It boosts your economy at the grassroots level. All the local shops in the city where the economy is happening, tourism is happening, etc., they prosper. And they welcome tourists. They may not like them, but they will keep the dislike hidden and they will show that uh, you are all welcome. So that's why I always keep saying India has the potential to become a tourism superpower. Why don't we do it? It will make everybody prosperous. So... When Indians go to the Western nations, European nations, Indians go there with money and they spend the money in, in the touristic uh, destinations, in cafes, in restaurants, in hotels, in shops. And that's why Europeans have no problem with Indians coming there. They like it. 
it makes them more prosperous. It, it boosts their economy. The Romani were refugees, helpless refugees who were expelled out of India. They were taken as slaves by the Turks into Central Asia. And then they, they realized most likely there were so many of these Indian slaves that they did not know what to do with them. And they, didn't, they most likely did not, did not want to slaughter millions of Indians on their own territory. So then they sent those Indians who had, take, who had been taken across the Hindu Kush mountains as slaves, men, women, children. They sent them westwards. They said, you are not allowed to go back to India. Get out of here. Go, go westwards and don't come back here. And that was the terrible, tragic beginning of the Romani story. The Romani, they speak a language that is of Western Indian origin. It is closest to, to Sindhi, Gujarati and Rajasthani languages, not to Punjabi, not to Punjabi. There is a misconception that most people have. You listen to the language, you'll actually understand words of it if you, if you understand any, any of the Western Indian languages. So that's what happened. The Romanis came as helpless, persecuted refugees. And no one likes helpless, persecuted refugees who look different, who've got darker skin. So the Romanis have been persecuted for the past 1000 years in Europe. The Europeans hate them. Even today, Romani people are still persecuted in Europe. They live often in subhuman conditions and they don't have human rights. They don't have documentation. This is the crying shame that Europe still... It's a crying shame that the, the, the European nations still do this. Yeah. And you will see this in literature. The Romanis have been executed for just existing or they have been enslaved by the Europeans, used as slaves. They have been auctioned off. Even today, many in many places, they are not allowed to live in cities or sometimes their children are abducted and forced to assimilate into European society against their parents' wishes. All kinds of horrible persecution has been perpetrated and is still being perpetrated on the Indian origin Romani people who are extremely talented people. Spanish culture is a gift given by the Romanis to Spain. Flamenco dance, flamenco music is of Romani origin. All right? Flamenco guitar, flamenco dance, it's of Romani origin, which dates back, which uh, can be traced back to India. And so many uh, great cricket, uh, uh, sports people, footballers, uh, boxers, artists, singers, and so on have been of Romani origin, right? So that, that is the contribution of the Romani people to Europe, even though they have been treated so badly. Now, uh, Sibela says, the Roman, Romani people in Turkey don't speak Romani. They refuse to be acknowledged as Romani and that's why they're accepted by the, uh, by the Turkish population because they all became a Muslim and denounced their Romani roots. There is a significant amount of truth to what Sibella says. In, I believe, I don't have exact statistics and data, maybe the statistics don't exist, but it is rumored, people say this, that at least 5% of Turkey's population is of Romani origin, Romani ethnicity. Yeah. And the deal is this in Turkey. If you want to be allowed to live in peace, you have to say that I am Turkish, I speak the Turkish language and I follow the local religion. And when people don't do this, they face persecution, terrible persecution in Turkey. Look at what's happened to the Kurds, Kurds mainly, right? The Kurds are not a Turkic people. They are an Indo-Iranian people. And they, they wish to have their own nation and their self-determination and all that. And they have been persecuted terribly by the Turks. Look at what happened to the Armenians. They're Christians. They are not a Turkish people. They have their own language. Again, persecution. The Romani, 
on the other hand have kept their heads down they have kept a low profile they say we are turkish we speak turkish we we are muslims and so on and that's why they are allowed to live in peace everyone knows they are romani they look different you you go to istanbul uh, on the bosphorus uh, coast and you see the flower sellers there etc you will see some of them who look like indians they are indians i mean they are of indian origin they are romani so the turks know that romanis live among are citizens of turkey as long as they don't announce it that i am not turkish i'm romani and all that they are allowed to live in peace now let me give you an interesting historical anecdote um, you must have heard of the young turks one second so the young turks movement is something that dates back to the early 20th century in the final years of the ottoman empire so there was this young turks movement which was a nationalistic movement which wanted a progressive turkey uh, which wanted the end of the ottoman empire to, to curtail the powers of the ottoman sultan and there were three leaders anwar talat and jamal anwar pasha talat pasha jamal pasha and these guys did the genocide of the armenians right they were i mean they they are to be blamed for that now one of these guys talat pasha so talat pasha is is regarded as a war criminal yes he was uh, in a way the de facto leader of turkey from 1913 to 1918 take a look at what it looks like this is what talat pasha looked like he looks like an indian guy doesn't he he was of romani origin and he is he was a turkish turkish nationalist talat pasha yeah that's what it is there are various memes around him he is regarded by the armenians as a war criminal by historians as a war criminal as one of the main architects of the armenian genocide he was a turkish nationalist and so on and so forth he was assassinated by an armenian so he was of romani origin so as long as you say that you are turkish and you and you work for turkey and all that uh, the turks accept you so everyone knew that he was a romani he looked different he 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 had dark skin compared to the average turkish person and uh, yeah he was a tall well built person and so on so that's one example a, a tangible example of a romani person in turkey and lots of turkish musicians are of romani origin it's it's in lots of turkish artisans who make handicraft etc are of romani origin it's very well known okay ramalakshmi says why no ramalakshmi says aren't strategic bombers high with high assets moving aerial vehicles with low maneuverability than normal jets okay aren't strategic bombers similar to aircraft carriers where they are quite there are many similarities in threats to it and tanks also vaibhav says what is the role of bombers in any air force around the world why are they so costly and why doesn't india acquire bombers as only russia china us have it now so let me give you an example of what strategic bombers look like the americans have a number of strategic bombers what are strategic bombers these are massive planes some of them are subsonic some of them are supersonic yeah let's see strategic bombers the one you're seeing right now is the b1 bomber the bone so there are various kinds of massive 
planes this one is a, a supersonic plane this is a different kind of plane the what they have in common is they've got very long range they can uh, fly for maybe 10000 kilometers with re- refueling maybe without refueling and they can carry massive amounts of of uh, weapons bombs to be deployed some of these so these are some future strategic bombers apparently uh the chinese are in, uh, investing in this the russians have their tupolev strategic bombers very long ranges and we have the b2 uh, the b2 bomber that the americans have the stealth bomber and so on and so forth there are all these weapons and weapon systems and uh, aircraft under development right so what are the commonalities that strategic bombers have firstly a strategic bomber has a very long range thousands of kilometers they can fly most ideally without refueling maybe 10000 kilometers go far away do your stuff and come back without refueling secondly they can carry massive amounts of bombs so why the why, why are strategic bombers needed first of all if you were to target your na- a target with cruise missiles so if you want to destroy a target you can send a bomber there and drop bombs on it gps enabled bombs or whatever or you could send cruise missiles there to destroy the target cruise missiles are prohibitive not prohibitively but very expensive cruise missiles typically cost millions of dollars per piece per unit you 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 uh, deploy 100 cruise missiles you are spending more than 100 million dollars but you could uh, drop many more bombs than that which would achieve a much bet- better effect for you of destroying the target for much less money so that's why uh, these strategic bombers are, are useful for that uh, and uh, strategic bombers are obviously vulnerable like uh, ramalakshmi is saying uh, strategic bombers typically fly high maybe 10 kilometers maybe 15 kilometers and they are visible they are slow moving targets they are visible so uh, they face great threats nations with good air defenses can take out strategic bombers and that's why there is nowadays the emphasis on stealth the b2 bomber is a stealth bomber it's a very long range bomber you can look up the, the what range it has it can carry a significant amount of uh, payload weapons payload bombs and it's very hard to detect but your other bombers like the b1 bomber etc they are visible and they can be taken out with a nation with a reasonably good defenses there will be countermeasures that these aircraft have so is is it true that strategic bombers are similar to aircraft carriers aircraft carriers are big slow moving targets you can defend them with all kinds of multi layered defenses but it's just a mathematical certainty that if you have enough missiles you will take out the aircraft carrier that's why aircraft carriers are not used in contested environments aircraft carriers are never used in contested air, uh, environments so what about these strategic bombers are they useful so in the past 2 3 year decades where have the americans actually actively used strategic bombers they have used strategic, strategic bombers in places like kosovo during the yugoslavia um, the balkan wars Uh, of the uh, the turn of the century in the 90 in the 1990s they have used strategic strategic bombers in afghanistan to target the taliban the taliban can't shoot back so it's okay they have used strategic bombers in iraq after they de- destroyed all the air defenses of saddam hussein they have used strategic bombers in libya after neutralizing air defenses they have used strategic bombers in syria 
where again the terrorists and Assad's regime, etc., are not terrorists, the Assad regime did not have the ability to, to take out these bombers. So the strategic bombers today are good at carrying lots of bombs and carrying lots of missiles over very large distances. And they are good at launching, deploying these, these weapons on enemies that cannot shoot back. Yeah? If you were to send a strategic bomber into contested airspace, there is a very high likelihood it will be destroyed. Yeah? So there are certain things that strategic bombers do. First of all, they, they, they carry standoff weapons, cruise missiles that can be deployed at, at a long range. So you come near the target, maybe 1,000 kilometers or 1,500 kilometers from the target, and then you launch a cruise missile. So that is one kind of thing you could do. But the thing is that strategic bombers are slowly but steadily becoming obsolete unless you have something that's invulnerable, something like a stealth bomber. Yeah. Uh, and strategic bombers can be replaced by fighter planes. F-16s, F-18s, Rafale jets, Tejas jets that can go and do the same thing. And these fighter planes can actually defend themselves and, and destroy other aircraft as well. But they cannot carry a Tejas jet or a F-16 or a Rafale cannot carry thousands of tons of bombs. So that is a drawback. So either you use strategic bombers in non-contested environments where there is no chance of it getting destroyed or you use very expensive cruise missiles or you use fighter jets which need to have multiple sorties and uh, then they can carry less weapons and so on. So these are the various scenarios that currently exist, right? So overall, war is expensive. Yeah, and there is always the possibility that you will lose your expensive assets. And increasingly, strategic bombers are uh, slowly, I would say, getting becoming obsolete. In the future, you will have drones, kamikaze drones, inexpensive kamikaze drones that could perhaps do the thing. Or you could have other kinds of weaponry that do not put your uh, expensive platform at risk and your people at risk. Yeah. So yes, I agree that in, in some ways, a strategic bomber is similar to an aircraft carrier. Yeah. Okay. Dungar Singh Chauhan says, US killed that is a Vairi in a Kabul drone strike. What's the evidence that he, that he is dead? Uh, Crazy Brain says, was taking down Zawahiri and the announcement of the same before Pelosi's Taiwan visit a mere coincidence. Yeah, so uh, to answer Dungar Singh Sauhan's question, there is no evidence that he is dead. They have shown no evidence. We have to believe their word. They said, we have done this and we have to, they said, we have killed him. And we here, we have to just say, okay, the Americans said it, so the, it must be true. Yeah. That's how it is. They have given no evidence that he is actually dead. Similar to what they did with Bin Laden. They did not show any evidence of, of him actually being dead. So we have to just trust them. Trust me. I always tell the truth. Yeah. And uh, when it comes to the timing of the announcement uh, before Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, was it a coincidence? It may or may not have been a coincidence. In geopolitics, there are actually no coincidences. So maybe it was timed in a manner that will coincide with Pelosi's visit. What was the purpose and the intent behind it? I'm not quite sure. But in a way, this uh, they have chosen to kill Jawahar Zawahiri, right now, I am sure they have been they have known where he, he has been for a very long time. It seems they killed him in Kabul, in the house of a guy who is a contributor to the New York Times or something like that. So, 
I'm sure they were tracking him for a very long time. So why have they chosen to kill him now and announce it now? The US is currently undergoing a massive recession. The economy is not doing well. People are unhappy. Uh, there is a lot of hardship. The supermarkets are getting um, becoming empty. All these internal issues. So when people are unhappy, you throw them some crumbs like this and make it look like, yeah, USA, USA, USA. USA is great again. That could be the reason, possibly. And even the Pelosi visit to Taiwan to start a new new Taiwan Strait crisis could be another diversion to divert the public attention from the problems at home. Yeah, Like I said, foreign policy is always a reflection of the what is going on at home, always, in any nation. It's always a reflection of that. It's always, um, of, uh, you have to take those things into factor, into, into account. Okay, let's take one more question. Harry says, how can I find, how can I find the courage to tell my family? about me being gay. They want me to say yes to a girl and get married in the coming months, but they don't know about me. Right, 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 right. See, it's like this. Um, you are what you are. I, I'm sure you know that you are gay and therefore it, it obviously does not make sense for you to marry a girl. You, what you're gonna, if, if you do marry the girl that uh, is being proposed, you're going to end up being unhappy yourself and you're going to end up making her also very miserable. Yes. You will not be happy and if you're not happy, she will also not be happy and because you're gay, she will obviously realize that you are that. So, it is not going to work out for you in the long run. You're going to be miserable. You're going to be unhappy. And we have to understand some, some basic things. All of us, what is the purpose of life? First of all, the purpose of life is to be happy and contented. And secondly, the purpose of life is to contribute something to society. If you look at all the historical figures, big or small in, in history, who are remembered positively and warmly, it's because they have contributed something big or small to society. They have given more than they've taken. In your immediate family, in your immediate social circle, the people who you like, who you have warmth towards, they are people who give more than they take. So I think it is the purpose of every human life to find their own way in which they can contribute something meaningful and something positive to society. Now, if you are unhappy, if you are miserable, if you are conflicted internally, if you are conflicted externally, if you don't have a happy personal life, what will you contribute to society? Right? You have to think, you have to think about that. You have to think about the long run. If you get married to this girl, then you will not have a happy life and you will not contribute something good, anything good to society. It will be very hard for you to do that. And also remember this, that it is not your purpose in life, it is not anyone's purpose in life to please other people. Your purpose in life is to contribute something good to your immediate near and dear ones and to society at large. And you can't do that by making compromises that go against who you are, right? So uh, I know it's tough. The first thing you have to do is become financially independent. When you are financially independent, you are more confident and you are under nobody's control. That's the first thing you have to, become, you have to do. And then you need to have openness in, your fam openness in your family. I mean, you have, when it comes to your immediate family, parents, siblings, etc., there needs to be openness, there needs to be trust, and you need to be able to express yourself and be who you truly are without hiding anything. And if you're in an environment where that, that doesn't happen, if there is no, the, the 
where you are not loved unconditionally then there is something wrong in that situation right i mean in a in a family you must have unconditional love a person may be this or that but we will love you no matter what you are we will love you for who you are that has to be there so um that that is the i know that's a dilemma you're facing you have to do what is right you have to think of the long term future not the immediate future Imme- right now you may make a compromise you may want to please your parents and you will make a big sacrifice personal sacrifice marry that girl but what happens down the line you will be unhappy she will be unhappy and then slowly you will resent your parents for forcing you to do this and they will not even realize that you made a sacrifice for them so it's unsustainable it's not going to work that way you have to stand up for yourself and and do what's right you need you must tell them yeah and maybe it may be difficult i'm not i don't know what circumstances you are in maybe you're not financially independent so first you must become financially independent and then you have to do what is what is right for you and right for everybody right if there is if there is a lack of openness and honesty then that's not a functional family that's a dis- dysfunctional family and uh, so yeah that's what i would say to you do what is right don't marry a girl don't ruin her life don't 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 make your life miserable the hard solution is the right solution for you you must you need to find the courage to tell your parents that you are gay and you do not wish to get married and if they truly love you then they will accept you for who you are right so so that's what i would suggest i know it's it's difficult i know it's scary but this is you standing up for yourself right if you respect yourself and if you want to do something good in life you have to get past this this hurdle and this obstacle so that's what i would say all the best sir all the best okay let's take a few questions from the live chat a few questions from the live chat if you have questions ask me now and i will take a few okay let's see what uh, let's see what we have let's see let's see let's see Shahin says what happened to zoroastrians who migrated to china and east asia why only those who migrated to india are still around today well there must be some kind of difference between india and china i do know that there was some small zoroastrian presence in china uh, even the manishians were there and eventually it all died out um, but as we know in india it's still there so i'm not sure maybe the chinese were not very receptive to to foreign influences and maybe the chinese ended that i am not quite sure what the exact history is because i've not studied that uh, it's it's in the overall big picture of chinese history it's not that significant unfortunately that's why i've never even thought about this question but what you are observing is absolutely right zoroastrians did go there was a zoroastrian presence small presence in china maybe in east asia also and that did not survive at all in india they're still around there are less than 100000 zoroastrians in india but they are very prosperous uh if you are a zoroastrian i i believe i believe that if you are in in indian zoroastrian and you earn less than 90000 rupees a month that is the that is that means that you are below the poverty line so the zoroastrian poverty line in india is 90000 rupees a month so that is something that most indians would regard as extremely wealthy and prosperous but for them they have a, a different um, 
set of standards. So that tells you that Zoroastrians have done very well in India. They have been treated very well and they have been, um, they have been given the utmost respect and they have been allowed to progress as far as they could. So that's the difference. That's how the difference has been. All right, let us see. Pratham says, you once said that Mustafa Kemal Atatürk was a true Turkic nationalist. Then why is Turkey a vassal state of the US now? Did you know when he died? He died in 1938, I now I think. If I am not mistaken, he died in 1938. Today is 2022. It is not 1938. A lot of water has flown under the bridge since 1938. So please study the history. I cannot tell you in three minutes what happened. Yes, when he was alive, Turkey was nobody's vassal state. He fought all the Western powers and he defeated them. Then he died. He drank himself to death. He died of liver cirrhosis, I believe. And then everything else happened. So if you want to understand why Turkey is where it is today, please study the Turkish history post-1938. Okay? Turkey became essentially an autocracy. It was run essentially by the military. And then as this new power emerged on the horizon, this new global superpower, there was this Cold War between the US and the USSR. And the Turks have always had an antagonistic adversarial relationship with Russia, which was now the USSR. And because most likely of this historical background, they chose to side with the US. And eventually the US became all powerful in this region. And then slowly the Turks became a US vassal state, but they still have imperial ambitions. They still have the ambitions today of restoring the old Ottoman era glory. All right, so that is in brief what happened. I did say he was a true nationalist, but he died in 1938. Please understand that today is not 1938. Today is 2022. All right. Uh, who is an who is Andrew Tate? Looks like I'm not too very well informed. I don't know who Andrew Tate is. Okay. Let us see, let us see, let's see. What else do we have? Uh, okay, let's take this one. Does China have territorial disputes with Nepal? Right now, there are no territorial disputes between China and Nepal. The territorial disputes are between China and Bhutan, between China and India, and between China and everybody else in the universe, but not Nepal. The Chinese are cultivating Nepal right now. There is their objective. They want to turn Nepal into a pro-China Chinese vassal state and use it against India until as long as it, it has some value. When they are done with it, they will throw it to the wolves again. Yeah. So the Chinese are cultivating Nepalese politicians, which was all started by in the Indian government in the 1990s. The, the Nepalese people had a monarchy. It was a monarchy that they had, a Hindu monarchy. It was the only Hindu nation in the world. The Indian government in the 1990s supported the Maoist terrorist insurgency against the Nepalese monarchy, royalty. We know what happened eventually. And now the, this Maoist communist infiltration at all levels of Nepalese politics is playing into China's hands. So the Chinese are playing very nice with Nepal. They are supporting the Chinese, the Nepalese communist uh, politicians and leaders. And they are ensuring there is no 
territorial dispute as far as I know, as far as I know, between China and Nepal. I am sure there are certain issues they will they will open when the time is right. But there are issues with Bhutan, with India, we know, even with Pakistan and so on. Okay, I think uh, that should do it for today. Uh, we have crossed two hours as always. So thank you very much, everybody. Today was much more into geopolitics, less of history. But uh, we will redress that imbalance in future episodes. All right. Thank you very much for all your questions. Always, always great to see your questions and interact with you all. And I will see you in the next episode. Until then, take care, be healthy and uh, bye.